All right, let me just set the stage after that nonsense for uh, the scriptures that we're going to hear in just a bit. Uh, in John's Gospel, which is where we're going to be today, in chapter 4, um, we are going to find ourselves in a Samaritan town called Sychar uh, at a well. Now, if you're not familiar with kind of the New Testament, and that maybe you've heard the term the Good Samaritan, and you're like, what is a Samaritan? Well, uh, to keep it very, very brief, Samaritans are, and Jews are sort of from the same ethnic uh, world, and they don't like each other. There is deep, deep political and religious hatred towards one another, uh, at least division. Uh, and so for a Jew to be walking through Samaria was a big deal, and that's what Jesus is doing here. So uh, in the scene we're about to get to, Jesus has sent his disciples away into town uh, to get some food while he takes a break. John tells us that he is wearied from his journey. So the humanity of Jesus, right? He gets tired. Uh, he's not like a God ghost floating around and never gets tired. And he's fully man. He gets tired when he walks a lot too. And so he is wearied according to John. And so as Jesus is taking this break in the middle of the day, which is another important fact, a woman comes to the well and Jesus begins to engage her in conversation, which is very out of the ordinary for a Jew, especially a Jewish man to do with a Samaritan woman. Uh, and so just before where we're going to be looking, I'm going to invite Dan to come up. Jesus makes all of these claims to this woman about having living water, right? They're sitting at a well. It's not an accident. He talks to her about living water that would satisfy her in a way that re the regular water that she's getting out of the well can't do. And so we're at this point in the conversation where she is responding to Jesus by asking for this living water. And this is where we're going to pick up. Go ahead, Dan. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you have, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is for the Jews. But the hour is coming, and here is, and is now here, where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all the he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Thanks, Dan. You may not know this, but Dan got called into duty last minute, so appreciate you doing that. Uh I know a lot of us are nervous about reading things in front of groups of people and getting asked last minute is, makes it even worse, so appreciate that. It is different than playing an instrument, that's true. Now, it seems like a fairly typical way to interpret the way that this woman answers Jesus, uh, Jesus' knowledge about her relational history uh, as kind of an attempt on her part to sort of deflect the conversation, right? If you just read it on the surface of the text, you don't know the context, um, 
you, you would kind of think she's just trying to deflect a tough conversation that Jesus has with her. Uh, and so her response in verses 19 and 20 uh, that starts with, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. If, if you don't know uh, any better, you might think that it's her attempt to change the subject. That's kind of what it seems like on the surface, especially since this is what I would do if I was in a moment like this. I would try to like shift the subject when someone was kind of talking to me about a subject I didn't necessarily want to talk about uh, in, in the setting she's in. Someone confronts us about an issue that we know is true, and yet we'd rather just change the subject than actually deal with what the person is getting at. But something is actually going on different here. There's something deeper than just that appearance. So the Samaritans, which we talked about a minute ago, as well as the Jews of this time, had a belief that a prophet, a person who was a prophet, was sometimes given sort of divine insight into issues that were going on in people's lives. So they could kind of uh, know what was going on in your life in the moment. And so this is why in another gospel, in, in the gospel of Luke in chapter 7, when Jesus is having his feet washed by a, a, a woman of ill repute uh, who was repentant and wanting to change her ways, one of the Pharisees says this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. Uh, now, sinners like this whole category of people who they didn't like uh, because of their reputation and what they had given their lives over to. And so we see here that there's this assumption that a prophet would have known if Jesus was really a prophet, they're saying he would have had this sort of divine knowledge that she's not worthy to be touching him because he is a rabbi or a teacher. So if this is the way that they thought about prophets then it's reasonable to think that in John here, in the text that Dan read for us, uh, that this woman, this Samaritan woman, could have thought that Jesus was a prophet because in her mind a prophet might have been given this sort of divine insight into her relational past. So that's what that line is actually getting at. Then after she makes this statement about Jesus' status as a prophet, what does she do next? She basically brings up a theological debate or a theological question, a question about doctrine. Now, uh, if we look at this through sort of our lens of Western culture, American culture, uh, without the lens of the cultural moment that she was in, we can make the wrong assumption that she's, again, just deflecting or changing the subject. But again, that's not what's actually happening here. Uh, she's very much engaged in this conversation with Jesus. She's sort of captured by the fact that he knows this about her. And so now she's like, well, you must be some kind of have some kind of divine insight. Let's talk about this theological thing. She thinks he probably has some knowledge, uh, and so she wants it. So she's very engaged. Now, the controversy she's bringing up in verse 20 is about the theme for this week, if you're following along in the 40 days of prayer that we're walking through, which is worship. Uh, and so the Jews and the Samaritans had a different view from one another about where the right place was to make offerings of worship to God. So we get, let's just distill it down a little bit, right? She hears Jesus make this offer to her about living water and eternal life. A, a pretty incredible claim, right? If somebody's like, hey, this water satisfies for a little while, but I'll give you water that satisfies for eternity. You'd be like, what? Where do I get this water? After you maybe work through, are they crazy? Not, I don't know. But the Jews and the Samaritans had this different idea and Jesus makes this claim. And so she also sees that somehow he has this insight that he couldn't have gotten any other way than divine insight into her past relational issues. 
And so she has this moment, I think, of clarity about her own brokenness, about her sin and her need for God. And what she is doing now with this question uh, about worship is basically asking this question that maybe you have asked. And I hope that you ask at some point. I realize that I have this brokenness in me, but what do I do now? How do I actually deal with it? Where do I take my sacrifice? I want to do what's right, but I want to also do it in the right way. Is it on this mountain or is it on that mountain? And I can't tell you the amount of conversations I have with people that are like this. In a moment of kind of repentance beginning to happen, they start to ask these kind of questions. Well, how how do I actually, what do I do? We see this all over the place in the New Testament. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, they, some ask, what do we do now? right? So it's a normal question. See, for her and her people, the answer to the problem of brokenness and sin was the sacrificial system, was this system of sacrifice. It was a religious act. It was a religious ceremony. And so she actually wasn't deflecting at all. In fact, she is doing exactly the right thing. She realized she has this issue of brokenness. She realized that the solution for it needed to be right in order for this sin issue to be dealt with. And so she's searching for the right response to God. She's a great example for all of us. There is a word for the right response to God, and that word is the word that we uh, use in the English language of worship, right? In the English language, that word worship comes from worthship, like God is worthy of our uh, praise and our adoration. So we could do a long series of sermons and teaching on the subject of worship alone, uh, which actually right now I'm kind of debating, do we want to do that? If you saw the giant calendar out in the lobby today, uh, we're going to have a couple classes this year, and I'm thinking, would one of them be good to do on worship? Uh, so we're, we're thinking on that. If you have an opinion, come talk to me about it. But we could do a long series of teaching on the subject of Christian worship, right? It's like a, an ocean of history and content. Uh, but here is the main point that's underneath this little exchange that Jesus is having. Worship is really important. It actually matters a lot. It's important to God how we respond to him. Now, before you start to, in your mind, put all of the religious trappings that you probably have from whatever cultural thing that you grew up in, I want to just invite you to pause for the next 20 minutes and let's talk about it. Because what I don't mean is certain clothing or certain songs or any of that kind of religious stuff. Although that stuff matters, that's not what we're going to get at here. It is important to God how we respond to him. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul lists worship as one of the distinctive marks of the Christian life. Right, And so get out of your head that I mean music right now. I do mean it, but I mean much more than music. He says that true believers glory in Christ Jesus. And music is an expression of that, a very powerful one. But that they glory in Christ Jesus, that they put no confidence in the flesh, and that they worship by the Spirit of God. That's in Philippians chapter 3. Just right here in the book of John... Uh, John lists worship as one of the three things that he says are musts. So in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. In John chapter 3, a little bit later, uh, it says the Son of Man must be lifted up. And then in John 4, where we uh, just were, it says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's an imperative word. Uh, there's a theologian from, uh, he's a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth who said this, Christian worship 
is the most momentous, most urgent, most glorious action that can take place in a human life, right? Because understand, in the kingdom of heaven, worship is going to be the thing. And, and I don't mean just singing nonstop, although the music will probably be great, right? What we see Jesus do here in this interaction with this woman is the same thing he did, if you know the story of Nicodemus, uh, just a few verses before in John. Jesus cuts through what's not as important, and maybe you've had an experience, an encounter with Jesus like this. He cuts through what's not as important, and he gets right to the heart of it, right? And what we see is that the heart of the issue in worship is the heart of the worshiper. That's really, really important. The heart of the matter in worship is the heart of the worshiper. This is why Jesus answers her question right away and cuts right through to the heart of it. He says in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And listen, that hour is here. When he's talking to her, the hour is coming. We're in that hour. We're in that era where where you worship is not the what's important. He says, in other words, the question of where you do the worshiping is irrelevant. It's a category mistake if you want to talk philosophy. It's the wrong question. He's like, I love your heart, but you're asking the wrong question. He goes on in verse 22. You worship what you do not know, meaning you Samaritans. You worship what you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Understand this. God chose to work through the Jewish people first and then to the rest of the world, meaning us. And he says, but the hour is coming, and hear this part for us, and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is starting with the less important and moving to the most important. So he starts with teaching her the minor issue that the Samaritans, they only actually had the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So therefore, they kind of have an incomplete picture of who the God they wanted to worship was. But the real question, the question of more, more importance that Jesus addresses in verses 23 and 24 is this. What does God require to worship? What is required of us to worship God? To, to put it in terms we might use, what does God want from us? What does he want from me? Right? And what we see from Jesus' words is kind of a two-fold answer. We're going to take them both in reverse order that they are in the text. So first, we see Jesus tell us that true worshipers will worship in truth. Right? Worshiping in truth occurs when we worship in alignment with what God has revealed about himself. We don't get to decide how we think about God. God has revealed himself to us, and when we worship him in accordance with that, then our worship is being done in truth. Now, gosh, there needs to be a whole conversation about humility in that, right? Because some of us are way overconfident that we've interpreted the Bible right and that everybody else is wrong. And so don't confuse God's truth with your interpretation. That's dangerous, all right? So then the reverse of this is also true. Uh, if we worship God in a way that is outside of the things that he's revealed about himself, this is untrue worship, okay? 
What we think about God is incredibly important. So for instance, we don't get to come to God, no matter how sincere, and say to him, God, I worship you today because of how amazingly deceptive you are. No, that's not who God is. That's not his character. No one can tell a lie like you, God. That's not worship, right? Now, that's an extreme example, but we do it in all kinds of other ways. In essence, some of us do this. We have wrong thinking about God, and we don't take the time to really dig into his word so that we will know truth from error. And I'm telling you, some of this is very difficult. Some of you may know what this word is in our current sort of cultural moment, but a lot of people are going through what we might call, um, what's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) What? Deconstruction. Deconstruction. I just lost it right there. Wow, 40 is coming quick. (laughs) So deconstruction is a phenomenon that's happening among people that are generally around 30-ish, who grew up in the church around that Age And they are getting rid of all the things that they thought were part of their true worship to God that they are now discovering after reading the Bible for themselves. Oh my gosh, that was just like religious stuff my parents gave me. And now they're going, I want to throw the whole faith away instead of let me dig in deeper and find it. And I think in the Alliance, we would talk about a crisis moment of faith. We wouldn't call it deconstruction. But I think all of us go, I've been through a process like that where I had to let go of some things that were very deeply held by myself and go, Lord, this, gosh, I'm asking you about mountains right now. Which mountain do I worship on? And you're like, it's the wrong question. And I had to let that go. And so I want to encourage you, if you're going through that process, to do it in community. Don't do it by yourself. The process can be good. And so this sounds ridiculous to tell God, I worship you for how you're deceptive, right? But the famous Christian author, A.W. Tozer, some of you are like, he's got to use this quote here. Here it comes. He says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of humanity will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base, meaning bad, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he or she in their deepest heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So important. So there are all kinds of ideas about who God is and what God is like in our world. And it can be so easy to allow ourselves to creep into a set of ideas about God that are simply not true. This is why it was important for me that we go through the creed a little while back. That is the summation of Christian thought about God. This is why the scriptures in Proverbs tell us, don't lean on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge God. Probably the most pervasive wrong thinking about God that I see in my conversations with people is that God is the God of giving me whatever I want. He is not. God has become 
you know, people say a divine genie or whatever you want to say. He's approving of, he's giving us whatever it is we think of that, uh, whatever makes us happy. And in, you know, there's the easy example to think of where we go licentious and we just live however we want. Oh, God loves me and he'll approve whatever I want. But listen, there's a dangerous religious version of this too within Christianity, within our, our stream of the church, right? Within evangelicalism that says, I can do all of these religious things and check these boxes and God will approve it even though my heart doesn't care about God at all. And that's more dangerous than this because over here you don't realize how far you are. Listen, we can do things with our lives that just lead to destruction and then we wonder, where was, where's God at? Right? And it wasn't God that was with you at all. It was a God of your imagination you made up. And so you can't do whatever you want and bathe it in neo-religious words about love and acceptance. Yes, God loves you right where you are at, but he will not leave you there. God does not accept everything that our sinful heart wants to do, but he will rescue you from them. He will rescue you from the slavery to yourself that many of us walk in. So then this is why getting into the scriptures, into the Bible is so vital for us. We will get into this in a minute, but we don't read the Bible because we worship the Bible, right? We don't worship the Bible. We read the Bible because in it is the truth about who the God is that we want to worship. Jesus would later on pray for his followers in John that we would be sanctified in the truth. And he said that that truth is the word of God. And so I just can't emphasize to you enough the importance, the assumption the Bible has that Jesus has about your life, that you are spending time in God's presence every day, and that a major, major aspect of that is the scriptures, right? I make this joke a couple times a year. The old song is true. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you will what? Grow, grow, grow. That's true. It's a cheesy song, but it's true. Not only that, Reading good books that make you think about what you believe and why you believe them are good for you too. And so when you watch shows, when you stream movies, when you listen to content, think critically about how those things are shaping your thinking about who God is. And listen to me, if they're not helping you think about God for who he really is, then stop taking that content in. Right? I know it's like we can't, oh, well, we can never put rules. Some of us need rules. I need rules to say, you know what? I'm just not going to watch this category of movie. There's just nothing there for me right now that's good. Tozer said that what we think about God is incredibly important. So God wants us to worship him in truth. And actually doing that is real freedom. God is not a killjoy. He's trying to lead you to something better. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at truth. In one sense, that'd be a little easier, right? Some of us love to-do lists, right? I have like a million of them because my brain kind of gets scattered and I need a new to-do list. Some of us would love to just learn the right facts, make sure we worship within those boundaries, and we're set, right? We're set. In the world of sort of Christian worship, there's two ideas about what's right. And when it comes to gathered corporate worship like we're doing this morning, there's this idea called uh, the regulative principle, which is we only do things that we explicitly find in the scriptures for, for corporate worship. And then there's the normative principle, which is we can do anything except that which is explicitly forbidden or sinful. 
We are in this category. I think this category is a little easier. You just do whatever's in the book. But this category takes some discernment, and I want to invite you that that is the category to walk in. Jesus doesn't just leave it at that. Jesus says we must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, here is what is important to know about this little piece of text. The language that Jesus uses here when he says in spirit is not in the spirit, right? So so don't think that Jesus is like saying something that makes you think that a different form of worship here is what he's getting at. No, Jesus isn't saying that all of our worship must be in the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying. What he is getting at is that our worship must also be coming from the heart, that true worship is holistic worship. So not only does God desire us to worship him in the truth of who he is, but also from the depth of our souls, right? It isn't adequate for our worship to be truthful only. It must also be from the heart. Sometimes we sing the right words, but we don't mean them. And and, and if that's the case, I would encourage you to keep singing them. We give as God has instructed, but our heart isn't in it. We pray the right prayers, but we're we're just kind of not there. So let me give you a simple example from uh, kind of verbal interactions I have with my kids, right? In healthy families, people tell each other they love each other, okay? So men in here, dads, like we got to get over ourselves and say it, okay? Some men don't like to do that, but just get over yourself and do it. So here, in my family, there, there are many, many, many times when Journey, my older daughter, who's eight, will be leaving for school or she'll be leaving for basketball or gymnastics or whatever activity she's leaving for. She's on the way out with Amy and, and I'll yell across the house, love you. And she'll say back to me, love you. Right. And those are true words. Right. I, I love that little girl more than my own life. Right. And you parents know what I'm saying. I would literally give everything up for her. I would either of my kids and my wife. She has no clue yet at eight years old, how deeply loved she is. No, no kid does. Now, I said true words to her, but we know there's a big difference between yelling, I love you, while I'm distracted doing something else. That's true. There's a difference between that, when she's going on the way out, and when I'm sitting down with her, having a conversation with her, and as we're talking, I just am overwhelmed with the love that I have for her, and I'll stop her and look her in the eyes and just say, hey, I I just want you to, I really love you. I'm proud of you, right? Those are the same true words, but they're much more holistic in that moment. The first example is truth. The second one is closer to in spirit and truth. If you want an even deeper example, we could talk about how if you have kids, your life has literally been completely rearranged and changed because of the love you have for your family, right? That's getting it even deeper. Like I don't just tell them I love them, but I literally have rearranged my entire life, my money, my time, all of my priorities around the love I have for my family, right? That's in spirit and in truth. This is what worship is. Yes, we must worship God in truth. We can't just make up whatever we want about God in worship, but it also means that it is more, much more than a Sunday experience. And don't ever hear me say this experience isn't important. It is, but this isn't it. Jesus himself quoted the prophet Isaiah in Matthew, speaking of this very issue, when he said that people's people's lips Sing my praises, but their hearts are far from me. And that wasn't good. That's not good, 
right? It's possible to come to church, participate in every part of our service, which we do our best to have just, you know, full of the truth of God and leave and not have actually worshiped. That's totally possible. But here's some encouragement for you this morning. God has not left you to figure this whole thing out on your own. At the moment we went from not believing to believing, whatever that was for you, you were given the gift of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us now and is at work in us to lead us to truth and to help us in our human weakness. And so it's the Holy Spirit in us that gives us that hunger to dive deeper into God's presence and his word so that we might know him better. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the freedom to enter fully into worship with all of who we are. Now listen, for some of us, the Holy Spirit's work in you might just be that you had the just tiniest thought of, you know, I really, I want to know God better. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Don't think the Holy Spirit at work in you is only when you're like, all right, I'm going to read the Bible every day for two hours now, right? That's not how it works. The Holy Spirit works on us where we're at. And so this is so important for us. The, the Holy Spirit gives us that hunger. And so this is why we have these core values of worship, community, and mission. You see them up behind me. Worship is first because worship in truth and in spirit, in spirit and in truth, is foundational for everything else that we want to be about as a church. Your relationship with God, that intimacy you have with him, that all you have of him is the center because God is at the center. Worship is the foundation because God is the foundation of all that we are and all that we want to do. And so we want to make sure that we're focusing on getting the worship part right. And I don't mean music always. We, we do focus on trying to get that right too. But we want to get worship right so that from that foundational place, our community and our mission will be focused on the right things. So what does that mean for us as a church? What does it look like for us to pursue that together? Well, let me just paint a little picture of it, uh, of kind of an, an ideal or uh, a, a view that I have for what it looks like for an individual who's here with us at our church. First, it means that being here on Sunday mornings is part of how you've rearranged your life around the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because, not because of my preaching, but because of being in community with other believers and, and of hearing God's word, yes. That, that Sundays are given to the Lord so that we can be part of hearing God's truth proclaimed, not just from my words like this, but from your mouths when we sing and when we pray and when we read the scriptures together. Second, it means ideally... Uh, if you're able, engaging in some kind of smaller group so that we grow close in proximity relationally with other believers during the week. You want to know why? Because smaller groups of believers is like squeezing a toothpaste tube. Stuff's going to come out of you and you're going to get to practice repentance and patience and forgiveness, right? Because it's going to just happen. You're going to get a little impatient. Someone's going to annoy you. You're going to annoy other people in small group. And you get to practice those one another's that we've talked about from time to time. So we grow in close proximity with other believers during the week. And so that we can dig into God's word together and seek to be on mission together as an act of worship. And so to that end, if you go and look at that giant calendar out there, we are having three sessions of small groups this year on Thursday night. So we're doing a lot of Thursday night stuff. 
this year. Uh, and so I put it on that calendar. That calendar is not written in stone. It's literally printed on paper so we can change it. But um, we're going to have three sessions of small groups. The reason we're doing them in sessions like that is twofold. One, uh, another thing we're doing is offering opportunities to learn and be equipped. So there's going to be two courses, so two sessions of like a class during Thursday nights this year, one in the spring, one in the fall uh, on Thursday nights. And so we're doing the sessions of small groups alternatively with the classes so that we have space for classes, but also so that there are on-ramps and off-ramps. If you're like, man, the summer's extra busy for me. Well, cool. Come to small groups for this 10-week session, and then if you need to be gone for a, a while, that's totally fine. So uh, if you want to see an overview of it, go check out the calendar in the lobby. Um, again, it's not written in stone, so some of it can change. But I'm hoping, honestly, not very much of it will change and that we'll have a great year of growing together. There's other things on there, too, that are important to us, like cornhole. So go check out those dates, right? Now, lastly, and most importantly, it means that we are committed. It's the Bible's assumption. Hear me, Jesus' assumption that there is a daily practice of Bible reading and prayer in your life. That is just assumed, right? So that we're digging into God's word. I don't care if you read the Bible in a year or if you read one chapter for a whole year and you dig real deep into it. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you are in God's presence hearing his word, hearing his voice so that you hear what he has for you and having your heart just grow in love for him. There's a ton of Bible reading plans and courses that you can walk through. And if you need help finding one, I want you to look right at me. I would love to help you find one, but the ball is in your court to start that conversation with me. Okay? The ball is in your court. Come initiate the conversation and the floodgates of resources that I have access to, I will open to you, but you have to want it. Now, here's what I want to leave us with this morning. Look at verse 23 there. The father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, understand who he said this to, right? This is a woman who has had a lot of relational chaos in her life. Some of it probably not her fault, right? In the culture she lived in, she was probably treated a little bit like property, so this is not all her fault. And Jesus wants her to hear, listen, God is looking for you. God is seeking this kind of person that I'm talking to. This was a radical way of thinking in the moment that Jesus said it. This is not how the Jews of his day thought of God. That God is seeking us out. That God is leaning in towards you. He's like just waiting for you to turn to him. Oh, he just can't wait for it. This is such an encouragement to the weary soul if you're willing to see it that way. God is not sitting back and waiting for you to get everything right. That's not his posture towards you. His posture towards you is like, I can't wait for you to just, just make the slightest move towards me so I can bless you and, and be with you. Jesus says that God is on the hunt for people who want to know him truly and who want to worship him fully. Notice what he didn't say. God is on the hunt for people who already know all that stuff. That's not what he said. He said he's on the hunt for people who want to know him fully. And so the question is, is that you? Look at this Samaritan woman as an example for you, if that's you. She didn't have it all together. She didn't have a perfect past. And yet Jesus is sitting here telling her all about how God is searching on the hunt for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And this revelation that Jesus just gives to her gives her a statement that's a really hopeful question. 
She says this in verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. I know the Savior is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, Jesus is, she is hopefully wondering if this Jewish man at this well who engaged her, who was honest with her about the state she was in, and yet at the same time didn't judge her. Jesus never judges her. He never, you know, bashes her for who she is. She's hopefully wondering, I think, if he might actually be the Messiah. And in one of the only places where Jesus is this direct, he answers her in verse 26. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now you're waiting for the Savior, I'm here. And Jesus is saying that to us this morning as well. You're waiting for someone to come and rescue you from your life, from the life of brokenness that you found yourself in. You've been trying to save yourself, it hasn't worked out. I'm here. Jesus is saying that to us. And it's evident from a little further down in John that this woman at this moment believed Jesus' words to her and began to worship in spirit and in truth. And so this is the way it works with God. We we don't get to worship God in the way that he requires unless we first believe in Jesus the one whom God sent. So maybe you've never known what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth, but you have perhaps wondered, what does God want from me? This is what God wants from you. This response. God wants from you full-on worship in spirit and in truth, and that comes through believing that Jesus is who he says that he is all over the place in the Gospels. And this text makes it so plain for us. Jesus is the Savior the world has been waiting for. That's what he clearly says here. So the question for us is, will you believe him today? Will you believe the Jesus, that he is the the Son of God in the flesh who came, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve, and yet, as we sang about earlier, rose in victory over sin and death, in order that those of us who are in him would also have this resurrection life. You want to worship God in spirit and truth. If that's you, you must first receive him just as this woman of Samaria did. Notice Jesus doesn't put her through a class first. She just receives him. There is nothing that can come close to how important this is for you. God is seeking out those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the question is, will you receive that? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time to grow in our worship of you. And Father, we thank you for the reality that we don't have to have all of the truth right up front in order to worship you. Just that we have to seek you and want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you that for those of us who have believed for a long time that you are, at, you are now at work in us and that because you started this good thing in us, you are faithful to finish it. So Lord, I just pray for those of us who have walked with you for a long time that we would just keep taking one more step, that we would just keep seeking your truth and, and worshiping you in spirit with all of our lives. And for those of us who are yet to believe, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Whether we're watching online or we're in this room hearing my voice, Lord, I just pray that this would be the day when we say, man, I don't know what happened, but I went from unbelieving when I walked in here or when I put on this uh, YouTube video and now I believe. Father, would you just do that work in this moment? And so we ask uh, that you would glorify yourself in all these things and we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together this morning and we pray all this in your name and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God now and forever, amen.